Let's bow together in a word of prayer as we open the word of God this morning. Our Father in heaven, indeed, we come humbled before you, thankful that you, the almighty God, have made a way for us to come to you. There was no way for us to cross the chasm to get to you. We had no righteousness of our own. We had no way to save ourselves. We were indeed lost without hope. And yet because of your mercy, we are able to know Christ. We're able to see him in your word and your spirit awakens our hearts and minds that we might know him truly. And I pray that would happen this morning for us as we open your word, as we seek to see our Savior. As he was in the final week of his life, Lord, I pray that you would capture us, capture our hearts, the grand view of who he is, that we might leave this morning with a greater sense of faith in him. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to open up your personal copy of God's Word to the book of Luke, chapter 19. The book of Luke, chapter 19, particularly verse 45, is where we'll begin this morning. Last week, we saw Jesus welcomed into Jerusalem to a hero's welcome. He rode upon a donkey, following the Solomonic example and fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy. The people hailed him as the Messiah, the Messianic King. And they cried out, Hosanna, which means save us, save us. Singing the words of Psalm 118 in celebration of his arrival in that holy city. The time of his entering and the time in which we find ourselves in this passage is the spring of the year A.D. 33. It was the time of the Passover and the, the feast of the Passover was one of three feasts that were required of Jewish males to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. This requirement was not just something put together willy-nilly or for a political reason. It was required of Yahweh himself. The God of Israel had required that all the males attend Jerusalem three times a year. And so Jews from all over the world made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover. At this time, Jews were spread all over the Roman Empire. However, because of this religious requirement to return to Jerusalem in Israel, Jerusalem the city benefited significantly every year as pilgrims brought their money to Jerusalem to partake in this required festival. It's estimated that Jerusalem year-round had a population at this time of about 80,000 to 100,000 residents. 80,000 to 100,000 residents year-round. But three times a year for these festivals, for these feasts, thousands if not millions would de descend upon this city. If we're following the first century historian Josephus, who is 
was a, a, a Jewish man who defected to the Roman uh, side. He tells of how many lambs were slain and the, how do we calculate number of people that ate from one lamb during Passover. And so if we follow his numbers, we can get upwards of two and a half million people that are there in Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. Two and a half million. This meant that the city and the surrounding area was jam-packed with people. It was absolutely inundated with visitors from around the world. Every house in the city no doubt had relatives from out of town that were staying with them. And we can probably picture that the hillsides that surrounded Jerusalem had tents set up all across the hillsides as people traveled and had to simply camp in order to make residence there in the city. Now Passover was a particular feast that did something in the hearts and the minds of the Jewish people. And in particular, it, it encouraged the Jews towards the thoughts and the longings of deliverance of the Roman overlords. It was a time when they gathered together in great numbers and they longed for them to be delivered. Why is that? Well, consider the Feast of Passover. What is it celebrating? It's celebrating Israel's deliverance from another Gentile overlord. That was Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. That is documented in our book of Exodus. And so on a normal Passover, there was natural stirring up within the hearts of the Jewish nation these thoughts and longings of the deliverance that God would bring through the Messiah. So you take that as a baseline at a normal Passover and then you throw in now here in AD 33 with Jesus having ministered for three and a half years leading up to this. This was not a normal Passover. The city was astir with excitement and anticipation that exceeded any other year. Again, for the last three and a half years, Jesus has been making waves in the Jewish community, not only within the nation, but as the other Passovers have taken place in the previous years and pilgrims came from around the Roman Empire to the nation of Israel, they then went back to their lands telling about this teacher from Galilee, Jesus of Nazareth. And they went home thinking about this wonder worker. But this year, AD 33, the anticipation was tenfold. Just a few weeks prior, Jesus had done an amazing sign that had, that had kicked up more messianic fervor and anticipation than anything else. Just a few miles from Jerusalem, Jesus had raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. This is documented in John chapter 11. And this event single-handedly created the buzz that Jesus wanted. Everyone began talking about Jesus and his messianic claims. Listen to how John writes it in John 11, 55 and 56. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves and they were looking for Jesus, saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? that he will not come to the feast at all? They were wondering, is Jesus going to come? We're waiting to see. 
and they've come up early to purify themselves to get ready for this festival and for this feast. And everyone is wondering if Jesus will come. Well, six days before the Passover, John chapter 12 tells us that Jesus arrived in Bethany. Again, which was in the vicinity of Jerusalem, just up and over the top of the Mount of Olives. It was Friday. Jesus was retiring in Bethany. The rest of the pilgrims that he traveled with went on ahead, descended the Mount of Olives, and went into the Jerusalem before sunset so they could celebrate Sabbath on Friday night and into Saturday. And those pilgrims that went into the city brought the word that Jesus indeed was coming. This question's being asked, is Jesus coming this year? And they say, yes, we've just been traveling with him. He's just a few miles away. He's going to be coming soon. He wouldn't come on Saturday because of the Sabbath. They would be observing it. They couldn't travel far. And so Jesus was then expected on Sunday. And we all saw this come together the last few weeks as we've been looking at the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. Thousands of people had welcomed Jesus with high praises as he entered the great city of David. No doubt to the average person in the crowd, the Jew that had traveled many miles to be there at the special feast, that day Sunday had to have been the most remarkable day of their life. The Jewish nation waiting in great anticipation for their Messiah prophesied hundreds of years earlier and they're waiting and waiting and waiting and now this news is here and he comes up over the Mount of Olives and they run out to see him. One who has conquered, uh, has power over death. Raising Lazarus from the grave and they go out and singing Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They can't believe it. They're actually alive for this day to see the Messiah fulfilling prophecy, entering Jerusalem. Hosanna. Hallelujah. They expected that as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, as he goes into the temple, that he is going to bring all of their dreams come true. The Romans are going to be finally cast off. They are going to be delivered from their oppressive overlords. There's going to be a second exodus and Jesus is going to lead the way. But how, for as great as Sunday was, Monday is about to get better. And this morning we're going to look at the verses that recount Monday and the start of Tuesday. This is called Jesus' Passion Week. It's not passion just because he's excited or because he gets angry or because he has a lot of passion worked up in him. It's called his Passion Week because uh, passion uh, in the old Latin refers to suffering. And so this is the week that leads up and culminates in his great suffering upon the cross. So, we, as we said, Sunday, March 29 of 33 AD, Jesus presents himself to the people as the Messiah. And then on Monday, March 30th, 33 AD, Jesus will begin to proclaim and to demonstrate that his reception as Messiah was justified. It was time for Israel to make a decision about Jesus. He's been preaching and teaching. He's been doing miracles. It is time for them. It is the last time for them 
to make a decision. And the question is, who will they swear allegiance to? Will they continue to follow the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders? Or will they swear allegiance to Jesus and to Jesus alone? To help the nation answer this question, Jesus is going to force the issue. He's going to force the question upon them, who has the right to lead God's chosen people? Who is God's chosen representative that people should give their lives to? They need to make a choice in the next few days of the Passion Week. Jesus will provide ample evidence to inform their decision. And we begin, here, we, we begin to see that evidence this morning. Let's, let's read our passage for this morning. We're going to be reading Luke 19 verse 45 into chapter 20 verse 8. So let's pick up, follow along as I read Luke chapter 19 verse 45. It says, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven... He will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This text presents us with a Jesus who is in control. It's a Jesus who is focused on his mission and unafraid of what others may do to him. It's a Jesus who possesses all authority and therefore deserves our unbending allegiance as well. And so in this text this morning, I want to show you three displays of Jesus' messianic authority. Three displays of his messianic authority that will prompt us to ask whether we have sworn allegiance to him. And Jesus was forcing a decision upon the, the people of the first century, the Jews there. But this text before us forces us to ask a similar question. Have we sworn allegiance to him? For that is what faith is. The first century Jews should have sworn allegiance to him because he was the Messiah. They saw his credentials, but they didn't. We must not make the same mistake. So let's look first at the first display of his messianic authority here in this text, and that is he dispels their corrupt worship. Jesus' authority is displayed in that he dispels their corrupt worship. And we see this in verses 45 and 46. 
It says, and he entered the temple and began to drive those, drive out those who sold. Now it seems if we were just reading the account of Luke, that here in verse 45, that Jesus came down on a donkey from the Mount of Olives. He got off the donkey, walked right into the temple and did this. But if we piece this together, we harmonize with the other Gospels, we see that this took place on the next day. Indeed, what Mark tells us in Mark 11 is that Jesus came down the Mount of Olives in his triumphal entry. He did dismount. He did go into the temple and it says he looked around. He surveyed the scene. He was making his plan. And then he leaves the temple and retreats back up the Mount of Olives and stays the night at Bethany. He will do that throughout the Passion Week. He will retreat back to Bethany into the, the safety outside the reach of the religious leaders. And so it, Mark tells us that the next day he then goes into Jerusalem and this event takes place. The cleansing of the temple. Matthew and Mark also tell us that on their way into the temple, before he cleanses it, he curses a fig tree. Jesus sees a, a, a fig tree as the morning light is coming up and it's full of leaf and he's hungry, it says. A very natural statement. He needed some breakfast. And so he goes up to the tree to try to find some food and he finds nothing on it. And so he curses the fig tree. They go on in on Monday. The following morning, Tuesday morning, they're going to find that fig tree withered. And the disciples are going to say, look, the tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus uses it as an object lesson to speak about the deadness of Israel itself. They are just like that withered tree. But Luke here, in his narrative, jumps right into the cleansing of the temple. And I have here a map of Jerusalem just to get your whereabouts. The temple is the building that's marked off in red there on the map. It's on the eastern side of the city. The Mount of Olives is further to the right off the map. He would have come down in the morning and gone right into the temple. The temple would be entered by the south, the gates that have since been discovered archaeologically, that there are great steps that went up into the temple on the south side of the temple mount. They, uh, the, the, they would go up through the gates. Those gates would then go up and you would enter in uh, there into the Temple Mount area. Jo Luke here says he entered the temple and began to drive those out who sold. This is the most abbreviated account of the cleansing of the temple in any of the synoptic gospels. He simply notes that Jesus casts out those who were selling. Matthew 21 and Mark 11 give more detail telling us that he went in and he overturned the tables and that he ripped out the chairs of those who were selling pigeons. This is not Jesus just yelling. This is not Jesus just asking people politely to leave. This is Jesus taking violent action. Overturning tables, ripping out chairs and throwing them. These actions were shocking then and they're shocking now. I bet his disciples were even shocked. He would have entered uh, the temple, as I said, from the south. And I, I've got a picture, uh, an artist's rendition of the temple. 
This is south looking north. And so you can see in the south side of that, that wall there, there's some steps that lead up to uh, the temple. They would walk up through some tunnels that then would empty out onto the temple mount. And then the temple proper is right there in the middle, the grand building that would have been in the middle of this large plaza. So Jesus comes up and there's a bustle of activity that he finds right there Monday morning in the temple. And he begins to overturn tables, begins to rip out chairs and casting them out of this area. Now who are these ones that he was casting out? Why was he seeking to do this? Was he just making a show? No, he was, there was a point he was making. He's says here of those who sold, those who sold, they were selling animals, pigeons, other sacrificial animals. Again, as I said, pilgrims from all over the Roman Empire, Jewish pilgrims came to Jerusalem and they needed to offer a sacrifice, but they weren't going to take their lamb from Cappadocia and come all the way down just to sacrifice it. They would, they would have to get a, a, a lamb, a sacrificial animal there in Jerusalem. And the high priest knew this. And so they set up a whole system in which they had their shepherds and their flocks and they would prepare them to come and to be sold to all these pilgrims that came and, uh, and they would set up a deal so that they would have to charge a high price for these animals. And if somebody maybe brought their own animal, they would find it blemished. Oh no, that doesn't count. You need to buy one of ours. But not only were people selling animals for sacrifice but there were also money changers Matthew and Mark mentioned money changers again there was a temple tax that the Jews were required to pay when they came they were to pay this tax and it had to be in a in in, in the half shekel denomination and so as, again as 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 Jews came from outside the area did not have this kind of monetary denomination that they they brought their own money they had to exchange it for the half shekel and the money changers would be there on hand to, to offer the service, but not only to offer the service, but to, but to charge a significant amount for the exchange. And so what was taking place was that these people that were there in the temple were not just helping people to worship. These weren't just like people at church handing you a Bible when you walk in, hey, want to help you to be able to worship today. They were running a commercial enterprise and a commercial enterprise that robbed people. Not just covering expenses. This was seeking to gain on behalf or taking advantage of the people that came to worship. This activity, make no doubt about it, was fueled by the greed of those who controlled the Temple Mount. These are the chief priests. These men who claim to speak for God, who claim to lead Israel in worship, took what belonged to God, his temple, and they turned it into an operation that stole from God's people, which means they ultimately stole from God himself. This was a temple designed for the worship of Yahweh. And instead, they turned it into something that fed their own pockets. And this behavior absolutely outraged Jesus. No doubt he saw it the day before. 
And he took action to then drive them out of the temple precincts. We don't know what else he did. Again, besides flipping over tables, did his disciples start helping? It seems like it was Jesus alone. He sent animals scurrying. He sent coinage flying. People were no doubt yelling for him to stop. And Jesus took control and did not stop until it was completely cleared. This is amazing. Mark 11 verse 16 makes this amazing statement. It says this, it says, He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. I mean, that's dominant control. Not just that he's kind of standing there I mean, people aren't coming up. They, are, they turn right around and they go the other way because Jesus has just cleaned house. And there in that moment, the chief priests are not in control of their temple mount. Jesus is. This was their operation. This is where they controlled everything. They called the shots and now Jesus has just stepped in and blown up their operation. Again, clearing out all this buying and selling was taking place on the temple mount. These tables were not in the temple proper. And we can, we'll go to uh, one more uh, illustration. This is a top diagram of the temple. You can see the temple building is the kind of innermost uh, temple or building there in the middle. But there were these other courts. And the largest court was the court of the Gentiles where no doubt this buying and selling and trading took place. Then there was the court of the women that was reserved for Jews only. And then uh, there was the court of Israel, court of the Israelites. And, but that whole area is 35, 36 acres. 36 acres that Jesus just took control of away from the chief priests and the elders of Israel. Josephus notes that 250,000 people could fit up on that temple mount. That temple mount that is still present today. The temple's not there. You know, the Dome of the Rock is, is there on top of the temple mount today. But that, that large, that, that mount, that big platform that Herod the Great built for the temple to be built on top of, you can still go to the walls of that today. Built with stones so big that our cranes can't even move them today. We don't even know how they did it. Amazing structure. 35 acres, 36 acres, and Jesus takes complete control of it. Did not allow anyone to use the temple as a shortcut. They couldn't carry anything through. Here we see Jesus' zeal and his passion for God's temple. And we see this passion in the words that he uses. And I want you to see this in verse 46. What does he say to them as he's flipping these tables? What does he say? Verse 46. It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. This statement puts together two quotations. One and the most readily recognizable is from Isaiah chapter 56 verse 7. And there it is a quote about the future eschatological temple, the temple in the end times in which all peoples will be able to go to the temple and use it as a house of prayer. Even those who were formerly cast out and not allowed in the temple will one day be allowed in, is the glory of Isaiah 56. The purpose of the temple is prayer. 
And this is essentially what worship is, isn't it, friends? Our, even our worship today is essentially prayer, that we are talking to the living God, that we are seeking to hear from him, from his word, and then we respond to him, we speak to him, we, we declare his praises, not that he needs to be reminded, but that he's glorified in our hearts as we declare them. We speak and praise him for all that he's done, his works of salvation. And we also pray in requesting, asking that he would work on our behalf, work in our hearts, work in our lives. So prayer is the essence of worship. Jesus understands that and he understands that's what is to be taking place as the, the Jewish pilgrims, the worshipers, they go up to bring the animals before a holy God. They're to be going in prayer before him. Their hearts are to be right in prayer. But that's not happening because of the corrupt worship that has been set up by the leaders of Israel. They corrupted the worship and made it about lining their own pockets Jesus says they've, they've turned it into a den of robbers. And that phrase, den of robbers, comes from Jeremiah 7, verse 11. We don't have time to read this morning, but Jeremiah, you read the first section of Jeremiah 7, and it is an indictment to Israel because they go off and live however they want, fill their lives with sin, and then they walk into the temple and think everything's hunky-dory. Well, we're fine because we're Israel. Look, we got the temple. The temple's great. God's on our side. Nothing's going to happen to us. We're religiously, we're, we're spiritually secure. There's, we have complete safety because we've got the temple. And yet they went out and participated in vile practices. They essentially viewed the temple as like a good luck charm. And, I, and Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 7 says, you've turned this into a den of robbers. And because of that, I'm going to bring judgment upon you. Don't be secure. Don't think that the temple is your safety or your refuge. That generate, Jeremiah's generation had to learn that God can and will still destroy the temple even in, because of their sin. It will not protect them from judgment. And now hundreds of years later, this generation of first, generation, uh, first century Jews need to realize the exact same thing. That the temple will not protect them from judgment. Judgment is coming if they do not respond rightly to Jesus Christ. And so, as we see in these two verses, do we see the authority and the command of our Savior. Do you see the boldness by which he stepped into that, those temple precincts and began to operate as the rightful king and Messiah? And what drove him was a zeal for the right worship of his Father. Let's remember that everything that Jesus does, he's driven by a desire to please his Father. He wants to do his Father's will. At all costs, everything bends to that. And so he steps into his father's temple, the place where worshipers are to be gathering and giving his father glory and worship. And he realizes it's not happening. And he's outraged. Nothing matters more to him than seeing his father glorified and worshiped rightly. He wants all people everywhere to be able to call out to his name in righteousness and purity and yet there is much that goes on today in the name of worship that is equally concerning as the high priest's business operations. In particular, there are those who seek to capitalize on the work of God in the church and seek to line their own pockets. Preachers who tell people that 
God will bless them if they only send in more money. They twist the scriptures in order to justify their mansions and their private jets. Their churches are not a house of prayer, but a sales meeting for a false gospel. But friends, we need to look at ourselves. And we need to ask, are we true worshipers of God? Are we all in on Christ? Do we have the passion, zeal that Jesus has for the Father? For the worship of the Father? Jesus is indeed Lord. We must bow our knees to him. We must confess his lordship with humble adoration. So the question for us is, is our allegiance with Jesus? Or is there maybe an outward expression of our faith? Sure, we go to, well, maybe not the temple, but we go to church. Or maybe we carry our Bibles, or we speak about the Bible, or we go to Bible study. But is there true, inward, heart allegiance to Christ? Remember, the priests looked like they cared for God. They cared about God. They were involved in running this whole thing about sacrifices to God. And yet the people knew that they were being scammed. It was clear that they were concerned about something other than the glory of God. And Jesus exposed that. So we see here first, the first display of Jesus' authority is that he dispels the, their corrupt worship. But there's a second display of his authority that we need to see and that is that he dispenses his gospel message. He dispenses his gospel message and we see this in verses 47 through 48. Verses 47 and 48 give us like a summary of the Passion Week. These days that lead up to the cross, there's, they, Luke kind of talks in general categories here. He says, verse 47, he was teaching daily in the temple. Verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 1, if your eye will glance down there for a moment. It says, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. Again, talking about these activities that Jesus was doing in the temple. It was a time of teaching. Jesus, in essence, went out and threw out all the money changers and the sellers. And he says, listen, we're going to have Sunday school, okay? This is no more about buying and selling. We're going to sit down and we're going we're to teach the Bible. We're going to teach. And so the people were there listening to his word. He was there to proclaim that he was, in fact, Israel's king. They must repent and believe in him. They must swear their allegiance to him and him alone. And he probably taught them about what we have recorded for us in Luke chapter 9. That if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow after Jesus. He's not just looking for a verbal commitment. He's looking for them to give up their lives. For he said in, in Luke 14 verse 31 that if anyone is not willing to renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus isn't looking for a half-hearted commitment. He's looking for a wholehearted allegiance. Matthew 21 tells us that not only was he teaching, but he was healing too. The blind and the lame were coming to him, and so he was teaching, he was healing, he was doing what he does as the compassionate Messiah. But there was great tension in the air. There was great excitement. The teacher's here. He's just cleared out the high priests and their operation. He's healing those who are sick, who are lame. But there's great tension. Tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. We know for years this tension's been growing. As Jesus taught the people, the leaders feared that their reign of dominance was being threatened. 
And within these leaders, there are two groups of people that we need to become acquainted with. The first is the Pharisees. We've heard a lot about them. And the second is the Sadducees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. We've seen the Pharisees so far in Luke. The Sadducees we'll find uh, later on uh, in this Passion Week. But the Pharisees and the scribes, Pharisees and the scribes were their experts in the law who went with them. They operated in the synagogue. So they were spread out in the land of Israel and they operated and taught the people according to the law in the land of Israel. The, the Sadducees, on the other hand, operated primarily in the temple in Jerusalem. And they both sat on the Sanhedrin, which is the leading body of the Jews there in Jerusalem. And so it's important to know that these two groups did not like each other. They competed for authority. They competed for influence within Israel. The Pharisees and scribes and the Sadducees. Otherwise known as the priests or chief priests. Now, again, these are in bitter opposition to one another. But here we have on the Passion Week, these two warring factions happen to come together and are aligned in their animosity to Jesus. For the first time, they're unified. At the start of Jesus' ministry, John chapter 2, Jesus cleansed the temple once before. He, that's where he made a, a cord of whips, a whip, and he goes through and he clears out in John 2. That's, that was at the beginning of his ministry. And the Sadducees who ran the temple said, whoa, 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 time out. Who is this guy? This guy's a problem. We've got to deal with him. And the Pharisees are like, no, listen, he's fine. Just let him do his thing. Well, then the next uh, three years, Jesus starts going around to all the synagogues, starts teaching the synagogues, starts going into the Pharisees' territory. And now the Pharisees are all enraged three years later. And then he, Jesus, then uh, comes into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey to great acclaim of the people. And the Pharisees are, are frustrated. John 12, 19 says, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They're saying, listen, everybody's going after him. We're done. We can't even do this anymore. They all blamed each other. You're, you're gaining nothing. Well, yeah, you aren't either. But now here on Monday morning, he clears out the temple, casts out the whole operation, and Jesus here severs all chance of repair. The, the leaders are hell-bent on stopping this man. One commentator says that the clearing of the temple was like the stick of dynamite that was thrown into the relationship between Jesus and the religious leaders. It blew up and there was no repair. And verse 47 tells us of their reaction. The chief priests... And the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. They were seeking to destroy Jesus. They wanted to kill him. They would have done it instantly if it wasn't for the people. Verse 48, they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. They were hanging on his words. And so they protected Jesus. Jesus was wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove, as he navigated these powerful people. I think it's easy for us to read these gospel accounts 
Oh, Jesus teaches this and people come up and ask him a question. He sends them away. And all of this is kind of just back and forth stuff leading up to the cross. But we've got to remember the tension and the, the significance that's in the air. One misstep and the, the religious leaders are going to find an opportunity to arrest Jesus and put him to death. There's this reality that the soldiers are waiting just off scene, ready to pounce whenever they get the word. And so there is, in a literal sense, Jesus' life was on the line at each interaction. And yet, does Jesus shrink in fear? No. He continues to boldly teach, to boldly heal. He's driven by a divine purpose and he is going to be unswayed by the fear of death or by the fear of man because he knows what he's to do and he's going to do it. He was not just a man with bravado though that just is going to charge in there no matter what Rambo style. He was the divine son of God who spoke with divine authority. He taught differently than the scribes and the Pharisees. He taught with authority his gospel message. And friends, this gospel message that he taught and sought to deliver to the people of Israel in that day now goes out through his church. After his death, burial, and resurrection, he commissioned his disciples to go into all the nations and proclaim that forgiveness is found in his name. And that is the same message that is proclaimed today, that today... Salvation is able to be found through Jesus Christ. His gospel message goes out with authority to every sinner everywhere that there is life that is found in him, in him alone. No one else spoke like this man. No one else taught like him. No one else has the words of life. Only Jesus. And so even today in the 21st century in the United States, forgiveness is found in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah who was crucified 2,000 years ago. This is the power of the gospel message for us today. This is the message that the word of God teaches us today. So I ask you, have you heard this message before? Do you know this good news that is to come to each one of us? Do you know if your sins are forgiven? Have you sworn allegiance to Jesus? Or are you following in your own way, in your own path? Jesus is not the defeated man who got killed by his countrymen. He was the crucified Savior. But three days later, he rose again and is now the resurrected Lord. A Lord that demands that we all bow the knee to him. Church, because he is the resurrected Lord, because he's the Lord of his church, and because he proclaims his message through us, are we voicing the message of Jesus? Are we voicing the gospel that is proclaimed with his authority, not our own, I don't preach with my own authority. You don't share the gospel with your own authority. We share, we preach the gospel with the authority of Jesus Christ that is found in his word. And we are commissioned to go. We are commissioned to speak that others might hear. How can they believe if they can't hear? And how can they hear unless someone speaks? And how can someone speak if they are not sent, if they don't go? We cannot be silent. But we must give voice to Jesus as we proclaim his word. And so we look to him 
to find the boldness and the strength that is needed to proclaim this message in the face of opposition. May God strengthen us that, that we may be able to proclaim this message even in a hostile situation. Christ is with his church today. He has not abandoned us. He says, behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, and he will equip his church, and he will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Friends, that is our hope, and that is our confidence as we proclaim the message of this Lord. But let's look thirdly and finally this morning at the third display of Jesus' authority. We've seen him dispel their corrupt worship. We've seen him dispense his gospel message. And now thirdly, he diagnoses their hypocritical unbelief. He diagnoses their hypocritical unbelief. And here we turn to the next verse, chapter 20, verse 1. Luke says, one day. Mark tells us it's the next day after the temple cleansing. So this is Tuesday. Again, Monday, Jesus lit the dynamite and threw it in, into the temple, figuratively speaking. Tuesday, he's going to have to deal with the aftermath. The religious leaders are united in their foaming hate of Jesus, and they're determined to get him one way or the other. And verses 1 through 8 is their first attempt, their first volley into to try to, try to rout Jesus. Luke reminds us, verse 1, that he's teaching and preaching in the temple. He's evangelizing the masses seeking that the people might embrace him and reject the empty religion of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But in the midst of this vast courtyard, Jesus is teaching. He's got the, whole, he's got the sway of the multitudes and there from the corner of the temple begins to enter this delegation from the Sanhedrin. The chief priests and the scribes and, and, and the elders of the people begin to walk across and you can begin this murmur in the crowd as people recognize that this, this delegation is coming towards Jesus. This is the elite of the elite. This wasn't just a fringe group that's all fomented about Jesus. This is the very heart of the Jewish leadership. Again, the question is, who has the right to lead God's people? Is it them, the religious leaders, or is it Jesus Christ? They come up to Jesus, verse 2, and they speak to him with an air of, of, of authority. Listen, we demand that you give us an answer. Look at what they say. Tell us, verse 2, by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. They demand an answer. In other words, who said you could do this? Who gave you this authority? And this is not an innocent question. They weren't just like, oh yeah, we're really curious, Jesus, you know, just wondering if, you know, you could kind of tell us. We're not sure and we just want to know. No, this is, they'd heard his claims. He's been around long enough. He's openly declared himself to be the Messiah. But they're now asking this question in order to trap Jesus. Because if they ask Jesus by what authority he does these things, and he says, because I am the divine Messiah, then they can march right over to Pilate and say, listen, there's a man over there that claims to be the king. And that, in the, the ears of a Roman governor, is sedition. And is worthy of arrest. Because Rome has no tolerance for self-proclaimed kings. And we know this is their tact because later on in the chapter, in chapter 20, verse 19, it says this. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. 
Verse 20, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. They wanted to catch him in his words and take him off to the governor. And so they're listening, they're watching, and that's what's happening here in the first eight verses of chapter 20. And Jesus wisely replies to them. It looks like he might be dodging the question, but he's not. He's, he's answering in typical rabbinic style, where they answer a question with another question. And so he says, I will ask you a question as well. And he posits this before them. He says, verse uh, three and four. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? The baptism of John. Remember John the Baptist that we were introduced to way back in Luke chapter 3? This is uh, the forerunner of Jesus, the prophet who went before preparing the people for Jesus. And he was a true prophet. But Jesus asked them, was he from, was his baptism and his message that he taught, was that from heaven? In other words, was this God sanctioned? Was he a true prophet? Or was he simply a guy who was who was really zealous? Was it simply from man? And this is absolutely masterful by Jesus. Because however they answer this question, they're going to reveal their thoughts not only about John, but their thoughts about Jesus. Because John and Jesus are linked. John prepared the way for Jesus. Jesus commended John. If you say that you approve of John and that he's a true prophet sent from heaven, then you've got to believe the claims of Jesus. But they're stuck in a pickle and we're, we're, we're introduced to their, their discussions in verse 5. They discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. For they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they are stuck. They don't know what to do. They don't want to confess the truth and they don't believe that Jesus, or that John rather, was from heaven. And so here, they're fearful for their very lives. The murderers fear for their lives. They're driven by pure self-interest. They don't care for the people. They don't care for the truth. They want to remain in power. They want to be in control. And they want this troublemaker who threatens their power to be gone. And therefore, in order to protect their own hide, they won't speak the truth, nor will they even speak their own convictions. They will pull the politician card and say, I don't know. In cowardice, they refuse to make their convictions known. And therefore, Jesus answers with the word of judgment, verse 8. Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If they are unwilling to be truthful about John, then they do not want to hear the truth about Jesus. They can't handle the truth. Now this is speculation, but I wouldn't be surprised if the crowd erupted into cheers as Jesus won the first hand-to-hand -hand combat between the religious leaders and Jesus. At this point, again, they're on the side of Jesus. They've been praising him. Jesus confounds them, sends them packing without an answer. They're going back to regroup with their tail between their legs. And the crowd, I would imagine, has got to be enthusiastic. He wisely outdueled them. Now, the question that the leaders asked Jesus is a question that people even ask today. Who does Jesus think he is? 
Who does he think he is to tell me what to do, to tell me how to live my life? Where does he get the authority to tell me these things? What gives him the right to say that he's the only way to heaven? And yet instead of questioning Jesus, we need to see him as he's displayed here in the scriptures that he is the man of authority, that he is the heaven-sent Messiah and that we are to bow our knees before him, that we are not to question him but to submit to him. There's no doubt where his authority comes from. He was sent by Almighty God. He came to do the will of his Father and he and the Father are one. Now friends, we can bring all of our honest and legitimate questions to the word of God and to Jesus. He's not afraid to answer our questions. There's nothing he's trying to hide. But at the end of the day, we need to recognize that he is the sovereign Lord. And that we, there are those who seek to stay in a questioning state and continue to evade responsibility and to say, I don't need to submit because I'm just asking questions, asking questions, asking questions. And they're constantly questioning and never arriving at the truth, never bowing the knee and submitting to Jesus Christ. And yet that is what he calls each one of us to do. As the sovereign, all-wise God, he demands our love and our life and our all. Again, the question for us is, have we sworn allegiance to him, the sovereign king, the Messiah? These words, Luke didn't record these words here so that we go, oh, that's nice. Jesus, good job. So proud of you. He recorded these things so that we would draw closer to Christ, so that we would embrace him, see him as our Lord, and confess our allegiance to him. Now we say, yes, Lord, I believe. But we sense our own weakness in believing, right? Our own frailty, our own shortcomings, our own sins that keep us from full-hearted, 100% zeal for the Lord. We want that, but we, we sense our, how, how far short we fall. And at that point, we need to remember the gospel truth, that we are not measured by our performance. We are accepted in the performance of Jesus Christ himself. And so we place our faith in him and his sacrifice upon the cross in which he paid fully and completely for every sin and every shortcoming of ours. And we trust in that, we cling to that, that we will be able to enter heaven, that we will be able to have everlasting life, not because we've lived the great life and followed his word perfectly, but because we have trusted the one who did follow God's law perfectly. And he paid the penalty on our behalf. And so this morning, friends, we swear allegiance to him and we rest in his mercy. Mercy for sinners such as you and me. That mercy is found nowhere else but only in Jesus Christ who has all authority in heaven and earth. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this time we've been able to spend this morning reflecting on the authority of Jesus Christ. Father, he is ignored largely today. People want to continue on as if they are Lord, as if they run their own lives, or they look to some political leader who is the answer, the one who can make things right. But Father, all of us are 
fall short of your glory. Jesus Christ is the only one who has the right to rule, the right to reign, the right to demand the allegiance of the world. And so, Father, I ask that you would please help us now to follow in our allegiance to Jesus. Please renew our commitment. Please help us as we step out this week to recognize and to reaffirm that Jesus is our Lord and we will follow no other. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.